Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hello, podcast listeners. It's time for some Q&A. Send your questions to info at primalblueprintpublishing.com. I would love some feedback. Anything you got to say, anything you got to ask, we'll cover it on the show. Trying our best to make this a community effort. And I love the uh, detailed and thoughtful questions and comments that come in, uh, especially the uh, success stories and people who have turned things around and are fighting a wonderful battle against the uh, massive momentum in the direction of uh, poor health, accelerated aging, hormonal uh, imbalances and dysfunction. We're going to talk about that later in the show with testosterone. My latest obsession as I continue to strive for athletic goals in the advanced age groups in the 55 plus and also trying to delay aging and strike that uh, fine line, that balance between peak performance and longevity, which a lot of times are at odds, right? If you push yourself too hard and ask too much of your body, uh, take too much time to to break down and uh, try to fight back and recover, that can easily conflict with your anti-aging goals. So I believe there's a way to do it right, where you can still uh, try for magnificent athletic feats, which contribute to your longevity rather than compromise it, which I argue uh, my time as a professional triathlete uh, when I was between the ages of 21 and 30, I believe accelerated the aging process in my body. I probably aged 15 or 17 years in those 10 years that I competed on the pro circuit with too much extreme jet travel all over the globe and the time zones and the the extreme physical effort uh, output required every single day uh, to put in the time necessary to reach elite level and become really competent at three sports, swimming, biking, and running, all of those happening to be uh, endurance-related and therefore putting you at high risk of uh, the the compromised hormonal function, knowing that cortisol antagonizes testosterone, right? So when you're doing these five-hour workouts or six-hour, eight-hour training days, uh, that's a lot of stress hormones dumping into the bloodstream. Even a moderately paced workout is going to have somewhat of a stress response. And then the tough stuff, uh, especially the traveling and the racing and coming back and getting right back into training, uh, that's going to contribute to a prolonged and excessive fight or flight response where there's too much cortisol circulating in your bloodstream all the time and suppressing testosterone, suppressing uh, protein synthesis and the repair functions, the restoration functions, immune function. I recall uh, keeping my uh, precise training logs during the years that I was uh, uh, a hardcore triathlete, and I would get a cold uh, four to six times every single year. <laughs> so, you know, in 10 years, what is that, 50 colds? And then uh, in the 12 years that I've been uh, aligned with Primal Blueprint eating, uh, especially getting rid of the uh, the grain-based uh, high-carbohydrate dietary patterns. Oh my gosh, I've probably had a handful of colds in 12 years, maybe three or four total. And those were one to two day downturns where I got a little scratchy in the throat, a little stuffy in the head, uh, took it easy, relaxed, and fought it off really quickly rather than struggling for two weeks, the first week being really tired and terrible, and then the second week, you know, coughing a lot and just having subpar workouts. So I attribute a lot of that to diet, overly stressful training patterns, and now spit out onto the other side, really trying hard to optimize hormone function and uh, keep the the muscle mass, the explosiveness, and of course, for the mental and psychological benefits of competitive intensity and passion. I talked to a lot of uh, aging 
endurance athletes, some of whom uh, write in and say, hey, man, you're uh, kind of, uh, you know, criticizing the uh, the whole pursuit of these extreme endurance goals in books like Primal Endurance. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that we can come off uh, a little bit negative or cautionary. And there's an important reason for that, because if you pursue these endurance goals with a flawed approach, they are indeed going to accelerate the aging process, suppress immune function, even compromise your fat reduction goals when we get into that chronic pattern where we're consuming too many carbohydrate calories to fuel exercise that, that is too stressful, too strenuous, uh, too frequently depleting of glycogen and stimulating increased appetite. That's called the compensation theory. I've talked about that a lot in recent books like Keto for Life and in Mark and my upcoming book, Two Meals a Day. So slowing down, backing off, and adding some brief explosive efforts to uh, your training pattern can really pay great dividends uh, in fat reduction, hormone optimization, and so forth. And how about that for an off-the-cuff freestyle rap monologue? I had nothing prepared. I just started talking. And now we're going to get into some actual Q&A. Hopefully that was valuable there. Those are the big things that are on my mind lately. So might as well let it flow, right? Okay, so uh, Bill Ferguson writes in from the great nation of Cyprus, or is that a territory owned by somebody else? I don't know. I haven't seen Cyprus in the Olympics too much. Ah, we'll do our fact-checking later, but it's so cool to hear from people all over the globe. You realize the power of the podcast medium and the incredible uh, potential we have for connectedness these days, even though we're having a, a tough year here recording in 2020 uh, with a lot of distancing and quarantining. At least we can connect over the airwaves, right? Okay. So Bill's been following the Primal Lifestyle for a few years. Now he's into the keto thing, 69 years old, but hypertension on medication and also an aortal aneurysm. Uh, so that's a big deal, but it's being uh, monitored regularly and very stable. I do not lift heavy weights or do sprinting other than very short duration, three to five seconds. Hey, thumbs up on that. Three to five second explosive bursts, wonderful idea for fitness. And maybe in Bill's case, uh, reducing his uh, risk profile if he does have some heart concerns. All right. So he was concerned because his cholesterol went up. Uh, I guess in the transition over to a keto pattern, uh, my doctor says I'm going to have to take statins if I don't reduce my LDL, LDL at 258 and um, HDL at 85. Oh, total 258, LDL 166, HDL 85, which is outstanding. Uh, remember some of the baseline parameters uh, that we've printed in a few books is you want to get that HDL over 40. Uh, you've probably heard of HDL qualified as the good cholesterol. They call LDL bad cholesterol, which is really erroneous and oversimplifying uh, the story here. So it's not good and bad uh, with the two types of cholesterol. But HDL is universally regarded as helpful and beneficial. Uh, it's nicknamed nature's garbage trucks because it has the properties of scavenging the bloodstream for damaged molecules and uh, promoting their excretion or recycling and repair. So the HDL will take care of some problematic uh, oxidized LDL. So LDL is only problematic when it's a certain type, which is the small dense type, small and dense enough to be able to lodge onto the walls of your arteries and potentially start the process of heart disease, which we're familiar with the plaque accumulating and then uh, turning into a clot that breaks away and causes a stroke or causes a heart attack on the spot, a blockage. Uh, so the, the, the idea here is that oxidation and inflammation are the proximate causes of heart disease, not the ingestion of uh, cholesterol and saturated fat containing foods. And that there is another type of LDL called large fluffy LDL, which is not really a heart disease risk factor anywhere near the oxidized small dense LDL. And so some of these big numbers when your cholesterol spikes up because you're consuming more fat uh, is nothing to worry about at all. And um, again, I'm not wanting this to be construed as medical advice, uh, but 
referencing some of the great uh, doctors that we have had the pleasure of working with and being guests on the show, Dr. Ron Sinha, Dr. Kate Shanahan, both state that the triglycerides to HDL ratio is arguably the best uh, heart disease risk factor tracker of all the blood tests. So the ratio of triglycerides to HDL, you want to get down to one to one is ideal or better. If you are worse than 3.5 to one, you might consider yourself a high risk uh, candidate, uh, ticking time bomb, if you will. So we got to get it urgently uh, down below 3.5 to one. So if your triglycerides are 350 and your HDL is 100, simplified example, you got to get those triglycerides uh, down. You've heard the uh, common reference that we want triglycerides under 150. Dr. Sinha wants to see you under 100. So I would definitely shoot for the lower number, especially when we're looking at how pathetic the average uh, subject is when we're looking at blood test results and they say you're normal and you uh, congratulate yourself. We want to be well better than normal because normal is so pathetic these days. We're talking about the fattest and sickest population in the history of humanity here in uh, America and the other developed countries that we export our wonderful culture of uh, fast food, apple pie, and hyperconnectivity to. So back to Bill, um, the HDL number at 85 and the LDL at 166, a functional medicine professional or progressive physician would say you have no problem. So this doctor is uh, threatening him with statins, which have tremendous side effects and some uh, great objections to their use because they deplete your cellular energy. They deplete your uh, critical nutrient called coenzyme Q10, uh, leading to the common side effects of fatigue and uh, lack of motivation to exercise, which sends you spiraling downhill. You want to do whatever you can uh, to get out of the category where they're trying to push statins down your throat. And of course, um, we don't want to, uh, it's not going to be a very successful uh, venture to have the podcast host going against the recommendations of your doctor. So you want to do what you got to do to get that blood work looking spectacular. Okay. Um, his CRP, his C-reactive protein, is rock bottom down at 0.1. Uh, I think you want to have that thing under 6 or under 10.0. So he's uh, showing that there's no signs of uh, uh, inflammation uh, in the bloodstream uh, from a disease risk factor standpoint. And triglycerides are really nice down at uh, 33, down from 44. So if your HDL's at 85 and your triglycerides at 33, you're well better than the ideal of one-to-one and you're con- pretty much consider yourself uh, free from that heart disease, heart attack risk factor category. Um, another thing that he's concerned about is that his HbA1c, hemoglobin A1c, that's a measure of uh, average uh, blood glucose over a longer time period than, let's say, your fasting glucose number, which is an on-the-spot reading uh, that you take at the doctor's office that day. So his HbA1c went from 4.7 up to 5.5. So that's near the concern level where they want you under 5.5, definitely under 6.0. Also, his fasting glucose went up from 96 to 113. Uh, also a concern because, of course, they want to see that fasting glucose well under 100, especially if you're a ketogenic type person. So my glucose seems to have drifted upward, Bill says, since I started cutting out grain sugars and bad oils, paradoxically, huh? I had good results and was somewhat shocked to get these uh, results. Uh, Can you shed some light on this? Uh, I've been doing the disciplined ketogenic eating, a weekly 24-hour fast, a time-restricted eating window. So he's disappointed that some of these blood uh, works have gone, blood measures have gone south. And so I'm writing back and also talking about it on the show. And I said, "Hey, man, uh, so many, so many good news uh, on those blood results. And as far as the elevated glucose reading from 96 to 113." Uh, I've had the good fortune to track my glucose frequently over the years and more recently strap on a sensor to do a two-week continuous glucose monitor test. So I would highly recommend anyone interested or concerned about their glucose reading or their 
uh, risk level for uh, diabetes uh, to get one of these things and uh, have that wonderful two-week journey where you can interface with a smartphone app and get your glucose reading 24-7. And while you're sleeping and you're uh, not uh, making... Uh, scans onto the device. Uh, you can do a scan once every eight hours, and it'll backdate uh, your your readings every fifteen minutes over the previous eight hours. So there's a new company called LevelsHealth.com. You can look at their website and their offering, and also NutriSense.com. And oh boy, this has been a real eye opener. Uh, I put the device on Mia Moore, and she went for a couple weeks and had just come off of a long period of uh, long hours at work and delivering an adverse fasting glucose value to the doctor. And in the span of two weeks where we did a ton of hiking and being outdoors and eating healthy, she went from uh, concern category to exceptional metabolic health. And a lot of this is the behavior modification benefits of having the continuous glucose monitor. So in other words, if you're sitting around after dinner and you get up and walk around the block, you can see in real time the beneficial impact on glucose regulation that happens when you uh, take a simple stroll after dinner. So I feel like the potential for behavior modification is wonderful to have that instant feedback. And uh, in my journey with the continuous glucose monitor, I was uh, very fascinated to learn uh, all the different ways that uh, glucose would fluctuate a lot of times in conjunction with workouts. So uh, doing a high-intensity workout will dump a bunch of glucose into my bloodstream, and I'll get a number up there in the 120s, 130s, 140s, but then quickly recalibrate back to an under 100 baseline value, and then uh, noticing how certain dietary patterns would give a nice spike to glucose, and then how quickly I can get it back to uh, sort of a baseline or an average level. And the professionals behind those two uh, operations that I just mentioned uh, emphasize that the ability to uh, regulate glucose in a tight range is the number one attribute that they're looking for. Um, and when you deliver a fasted reading up and over 100 and have a health concern accordingly, uh, you got to look at this in the big picture. So in Bill's case, he's an athlete. He's in this very low carbohydrate eating pattern. And it's very likely that especially in the morning, you are manufacturing your own glucose and dumping it into the bloodstream to give you uh, a sense of energy and uh, motivation to get up and start your day. So there's an expected glucose spike in the morning even in a fasted state that might put you up and over 100. And I wrote back and said, yeah, mine were all have been all over the place for years. Uh, and, and many times I was remembering uh, being in a prolonged fasted state, testing blood glucose and seeing it over 100. And it was very likely due to uh, the combination of high intensity workouts and prolonged fasting so that my body was working hard to keep me level and keep me awake rather than uh, seeing my blood sugar dive. And if you're really keto adapted, what you're predicting is uh, a spike in blood ketone values while glucose is down uh, in the lower range under 100. But it doesn't seem to be always the case, and it wasn't for me. And so I could look at my big picture of feeling great, uh, having good blood values like Bill reports, so low inflammatory markers, uh, low triglycerides or healthy triglycerides, healthy HDL, and not worry about it too much. Uh, but finally, or uh, to, to summarize, um, perhaps getting a continuous glucose monitor will make you feel much more comfortable than taking a single reading at a doctor's office one time and uh, basing some health decisions or having some concerns about that. And so if you don't want to get the uh, glucose monitor, uh, which is a decent investment, I think it might be a couple hundred bucks or a few hundred bucks, but you do get medical consultation and constant nurse handholding uh, when you sign up for their programs. Again, NutriSense, N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E, or Levels Health, uh, two new players in this wonderful new game. You can see what they have, or you can purchase a Precision Extra, X-T-R-A, Precision Extra measuring device uh, on the internet, Amazon, whatever, and some test strips. And this Precision Extra device will test both blood ketones 
and blood glucose anytime you want to prick your finger and test. So over the years, since uh, Mark and I started working on the Keto Reset Diet book project, uh, I've done extensive testing just to see how uh, different dietary patterns, meals, affected my ketone levels and my glucose levels. So having that larger body uh, of data to evaluate uh, can make you feel more comfortable at times, especially when you're confused and wondering why your glucose has drifted up over time. I'm going to predict maybe you'll go back there next week and you uh, deliver a glucose value in the 80s instead of 110. So you went from 93 in 2018, all of a sudden everything's fantastic. Yeah. But again, if you're not feeling great, not recovering well, these are great things to look at. And if you do feel like you're in the I'm talking to all listeners now. Uh, if you feel like you're in that uh, disease risk factor category uh, for pre-diabetic, uh, that's when you really want to take advantage of the new technology and the smartphone uh, continuous glucose readouts. Uh, as far as the HbA1c, I remember uh, talking to Peter Atia saying that he disliked that blood test value because he feels like there's a high margin of error. He said a margin of error up to 1.0. In other words, a whole point difference could just be from uh, uh, inaccurate uh inaccurate result, right? So if um, 5.5 in HbA1c is a concern and 4.5 is exceptional, uh, that warrants that you don't put too much confidence or too much weight on the test. But if we can kind of get a big picture of, you know, getting as much data as we can uh, put together and try to solve some of these problems. Uh, but again, I predate this self-quantification period of uh, humanity. And so I'm also tracking how I feel every day and how well I recover from workouts and uh, things of that nature. So uh, how's that sound? Okay. Uh, and then on the uh, topic of your doctor uh, wanting uh, statins, uh, you know, if you can't sort of see eye to eye with a, a progressive, uh, evolved mindset, there's a strong recommendation to go find a different doctor who's going to have a little more holistic point of view on the use of those drugs. Um, some research on statins reveals that uh, only their peripheral effects are the the ones that are really valuable. And then the direct effect of statins lowering LDL cholesterol or lowering all forms of cholesterol uh, can actually be counterproductive. Dr. Sinha references a UCLA meta-study. A meta-study is a study of hundreds of other similar studies on the same topic. A UCLA meta-study revealed that 80% of heart attack victims had cholesterol in the, quote, normal or, quote, healthy range. A lot of those victims were artificially suppressing their cholesterol levels so they could be normal uh, through statin use. But if 80% of heart attack victims have healthy cholesterol, uh, it seems that we might want to find uh, different numbers to track rather than the uh, all-powerful LDL, quote-unquote, bad cholesterol. This is a story that's now dated by 40 or 50 years, and it's called the lipid hypothesis of heart disease that started in the 50s or 60s and has now been upended by, uh, you know, modern science, but it takes a long time for the big giant beasts of the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry to catch up. So look for a progressive doctor that has an evolved mindset Uh, Listen to the shows, educate yourself uh, with Dr. Shanahan or Dr. Sinha, particularly talking about uh, the triglycerides to HDL ratio and watch those triglycerides. That's the level of fat circulating in your blood. If your triglycerides are elevated, it indicates that you're in a high insulin producing fat storage pattern. So rather than burning fat, it's accumulating in your blood as insulin needs to transport it into storage because of your high-carbohydrate, high-insulin-producing eating pattern. So definitely want to uh, get those triglycerides down into a healthy level, which means that you're turning on the fat-burning mechanisms and stepping off that disastrous train uh, of carbohydrate dependency and energy level fluctuations. 
Okay. Uh, another thing I said to Bill in my uh, written reply was that your blood pressure medications could be influencing your results. Remember that medications have massive side effects, period. So if you can somehow uh, set that goal of getting off that blood pressure medication by doing more yoga, more meditation, more blood pressure lowering behaviors, uh, a walk in the evening, a little swim in the Mediterranean in Cyprus, whatever you got... Um, that is going to be a wonderful thing. Uh, Dr. Phil Maffetone goes so far as to advocate to his endurance athletes that, you, you know, the uh, 180 minus your age maximum aerobic function heart rate to uh, dictate your uh, limit for uh, a cardiovascular workout to be a true fat-burning workout. You take 180 minus your age, if you're not familiar, uh, and then that number in beats per minute is the limit of your exertion to make sure that it's a fat-burning workout, that it's not too stressful, that it doesn't kick into elevated glucose burning and reduce fat burning. So 180 minus age uh, represents the number where you achieve maximum fat oxidation per minute. The most fat calories per minute are being burned. Of course, if you speed up and go faster, you're burning more calories per minute, but you're burning less fat and you're starting to uh, spike the glucose burning because you need to fuel a faster and faster pace. And remember, uh, fat needs oxygen to burn. So if you get into the anaerobic uh, effort levels where you're, you're breathing hard, not getting quite enough oxygen, you're going to have to transition over from fat to glucose. Uh, so we want to keep the, the cardio at 180 minus your age or below. Now, here's the kicker is why I started uh, telling this insight. Uh, Dr. Maffetone suggests that if you are on any kind of prescription medication, anything, he don't even care what the name is, that you must subtract an additional 10 beats from your math number, from your maximum aerobic heart rate due to the side effects of taking prescription medication. In other words, you are less efficient at burning fat, less efficient at processing energy during exercise because you are taking uh, prescription medication. It's that big of a deal. Okay. How does that sound, Bill? Good job keep it up, do more testing, uh, gain some confidence that you're on the right track, and have some sit-downs, have some heart-to-heart -heart with your doctor about both the blood pressure meds and the statins so that your doctor can nod his or her head uh, in support of you uh, not taking the drugs rather than listening to a podcast guy uh, messing with your medication regimen. That is not the intent of the message here. I think you guys can all get where I'm coming from. Get You know what I'm saying. Yes, you do. Next question. And this is sort of a compilation of numerous questions, comments uh, on Facebook. Dr. Lindsay Taylor doing the great uh, moderation efforts of the Keto Reset Facebook group and the Primal Blueprint. And lots of people are concerned about uh, food choices, uh, meal decisions, uh, and fasting. So one of them, I guess you could summarize is, uh, should I eat even if I'm not hungry or I'm rarely hungry? Oh my gosh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? What if you're not hungry? Should I eat? Um, for the most part, you could say, wait till you're hungry to eat. And I don't think you're going to trash your health by uh, adhering to uh, that, that suggestion. Now, it's a little more nuanced here, isn't it? One thing that I've noticed is when I'm super busy and possibly stressed or in a high peak performance state, I'm not hungry because I'm not thinking about food. I'm too busy yapping into this microphone. And so if I'm going on a hectic day with not enough break, not enough downtime, not enough cognitive refreshment, I'm going to kind of switch into uh, fight or flight dominant mode, sympathetic nervous system function dominant, as opposed to parasympathetic and sympathetic harmony. Parasympathetic is nicknamed the rest and digest functions, uh, that component of the autonomic nervous system. And sympathetic is nicknamed fight or flight for those mechanisms uh, that it's, it's responsible for uh, within the overall functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So there's two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And ideally, we'll have a harmonious balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. That's why we do things like uh, have weekends, vacations, 
vacations, uh, lunch breaks during the busy workday, things like that, where you can kind of take a breather and calm down and allow parasympathetic activity to uh, predominate and give you some uh, restoration from the uh, fight or flight, you know, high stimulatory nature of sympathetic function. Okay, so if you don't have that balance in place during your hectic workday, you might not be hungry, but it might really benefit you to break away from the high stress nature of your screen or your work environment, uh, go out to the park and uh, have something uh, nutritious to eat. So you're getting some good nourishment and you're getting a break. And of course, when you're choosing uh, nutrient-dense foods, you're getting a variety of benefits from those foods. And this will kind of um, guard against you just making sugar through the process of gluconeogenesis. That's that's um, the body stripping down lean muscle mass and converting it into glucose to meet your energy needs when you're in a highly stressed or a prolonged stressful state. Uh, if you want to take this uh, explanation to the extreme, you can probably all reference a time of uh, deep personal crisis where you weren't the slightest bit hungry, uh, even for days on end sometimes, if it's something really serious where you wake up in the morning, uh, you barely slept, you slept fitfully, your fingers, your hands were already shaken, and you're rushing right back off to uh, the hospital to deal with a family crisis or what have you. And this is the reason that you're able to function all day long without food is because your body is furiously making a steady supply of sugar to keep your brain alert and keep your muscles moving and active even in the absence of meals. So that's the extreme uh, example of fight or flight dominance. And we want to guard against that because guess where that's headed? That's right. Breakdown, burnout, uh, falling apart when finally the uh, the unrelenting stress uh, you know, stops and you're able to catch your breath and realize that you're pretty trashed and burnt out. So there's the plug for eating nutritious meals uh, in due time, right? But I think we can all do better to um, eat fewer meals. That's why the upcoming book is called Two Meals a Day. That's kind of the uh, the ambition is to eat a maximum of two meals a day rather than have this notion that we need to snack or eat three meals every single day. And so I think that's uh, an attempt to answer the basic question of uh, even if I'm not hungry, should I eat? But, you know, getting better and better at fasting and feeling productive and even doing good workouts or good cognitive work without a meal is uh, by and large regarded as, you know, a good sign of metabolic flexibility, one of the healthiest, uh, most important health attributes you can develop to be able to function uh, without needing a sit-down meal, uh, but rather the ability to uh, manufacture and burn all kinds of different sources of energy uh, internally, such as fat, such as uh, mobilizing stored glycogen to burn, for example, doing a fasted workout, you know, using that stored energy to burn up, and then, of course, making ketones when uh, you've been fasting for a prolonged period of time and you need fuel for your brain, or when your dietary carbohydrate intake is low at meals and you need some fuel for your brain, get that ketone burning going, and all those wonderful benefits that are detailed uh, at length in the Keto Reset Diet. The next question batch is all about fasting, peppered with questions left and right. Should I go for the 16-8 as the centerpiece goal? Uh, what happens if I don't get enough protein uh, during my compressed eating window? Uh, does having a cup of coffee or tea in the morning break my fast, etc., etc.? So let's talk a little bit about fasting. Yeah, the 16-8 pattern is starting to get bantered around as a, uh, a soundbite, and it simply means uh, achieving a fasting period for 16 hours and then having an eating window uh, of 8 hours. It doesn't mean eating all 8 hours. It means that that's the 
time period uh, in which you consume all of your calories. So a simple example would be, uh, you know, finishing your dinner at 8 p.m., overnight fast, and then eating your first meal at 12 noon. And that gives you a 16-hour fasting period. And then between 12 noon and 8 p.m., you're going to have your calories. Ideally, it would be um, a, a lunch and dinner meal at the most and no snacking in between. We now know that uh, there are numerous uh, adverse effects of snacking uh, I love Dr. Kate Shanahan's take on this. I think we have some of that content on one of the previously published podcasts. But she says, anytime you eat anything, even if it's a fat bomb, uh, totally keto-approved, delicious, nutritious uh, treat that you find in one of our cookbooks, uh, regardless, anytime you consume anything, you immediately shut off the burning of uh, stored body fat in favor of burning whatever it is you just ate. So if it's a sugary snack like a Power Bar, Cliff Bar, something like that, the show is not sponsored by those two energy bar companies or anyone else who's putting out uh, crappy processed stuff. I know I used to endorse and use that stuff all the time. Who knew that throwing sugar down your body throughout the day uh, could be considered unhealthy years later? Well, some people knew. We weren't listening very well, were we? Dr. Maffetone knew way back then. He was talking about the evils of carbohydrates. Everyone's like, what is he talking about? I remember he gave a, uh, a, a, a presentation, a live presentation. I was the MC. It was the uh, triathlon banquet before this big race in San Jose. And he dropped a one-liner. He said, it's not the, uh, it's not the eggs that are killing us. It's the Wheaties. And everybody just froze. I mean, there was no laughter. There was no nothing. It was just like he blew them away with the strangest uh, random insight ever. And I guess it takes years to come around and finally appreciate the significance uh, of that statement and that uh, chronic cardio, chronic carbohydrate consumption pattern and how that promotes disease processes. Uh, so anyway, um, the 16-8 pattern is a uh, sensible and reasonable and worthwhile goal. It doesn't have to be the end all if it doesn't work for you. Uh, but generally speaking, we certainly should be able to uh, thrive and perform uh, even workouts and even in the workplace, cognitive demands uh, without needing, desperately needing calories as soon as we wake up. Because remember, we were probably well fed by the end of the previous day. Uh, we don't have huge caloric requirements overnight while sleeping. And then uh, as we get up and go, uh, we should be taking advantage of our prime fat-burning opportunities in those morning hours. We're probably even making ketones when we wake up, no matter who we are. Even if you're not a keto enthusiast, uh, due to the uh, fasting period overnight, liver glycogen is getting uh, slowly depleted uh, just from the hours of sleeping, and you're putting out a little bit of ketones until you consume your first meal. And if it's high carb, you completely shut off uh, internal energy uh, production processes in favor of burning through those carbohydrates, storing the excess carbohydrates as fat, and putting yourself on the insulin blood sugar roller coaster for the rest of the day, setting yourself up anyway with that all-American high-carbohydrate breakfast. So if you're not consuming any calories during those morning hours, you are leveraging uh, your ability to burn that stored body fat and set you up nicely for uh, a day that... Uh, emphasizes fat burning rather than getting your caloric requirements met from ingested meals. Now, if you uh, have a busy day where you don't have a great chance to sit back in the middle of the workday, disengage from the high-stress workplace, go out to the park and have a or, or some restaurant and have a nice, calm, relaxing meal, stimulating parasympathetic rest and digest function, maybe you have uh, a, a better decision of getting your calories in the morning before you leave the home. You have access to good food. You can make yourself a nice meal. You can have a relaxing start to the day. Uh, maybe you're connecting with family or whatever, and then you're heading off into the busy, hectic, stressful day where there's no chance at midday for a wonderful, ideal lunch. In that case, why not? You start your day with a good meal, and then uh, your fasting period and your uh, kick-starting uh, the burning of stored body fat and possibly ketone production will occur during the busy hours of the day where you don't have time to eat. 
So you fuel yourself for that busy day with a nutritious meal in the morning, and then the fasting can extend uh, into the dinner meal. Uh, Brian McAndrew, the keto king and uh, power lifter, strength trainer, carnivore-ish, extraordinaire, long-time primal counterpart who masters these recordings and does all the videos on YouTube. Uh, he favors this approach right now. He's always experimenting and optimizing. Uh, but he has the uh, the morning meal and then a midday workout and then an early evening meal. And those are his two meals in the day. He's well-fueled for the, uh, the midday workout. And then the evening meal uh, ensures recovery from the midday workout and then back to the pattern the next day. So that's another option. Uh, but the 16 and 8, I would say, let's say for the average office worker where you don't have huge caloric demands in the morning and you can get away and have a nice break in the middle of the day, uh, it's a nice goal to shoot for. And I also want to put in a plug for uh, the intuitive approach to fasting, whereby you're not doing something robotic every single day, no matter what, because you are so locked in and obsessive and regimented. So I would put myself in this category where I pretty much go with the flow every day. But after years and years of uh, building metabolic flexibility, trying to eat in a primal aligned or keto aligned or even a carnivore-ish pattern in recent times, uh, I don't have a huge need to uh, prepare a lavish breakfast in the morning. I don't have the appetite and I prefer to wait until midday to have my first calorie consumption. Uh, Sometimes I'm working through a tiny bit of hunger in the morning for whatever reason. One reason is uh, a big meal later in the evening, the previous evening, or an indulgence the previous evening, like my popcorn habit, which I talk about. If you want to listen to the Fatty Popcorn Boy Saga on the Get Over Yourself podcast, that's the title of the episode. Listen to that one because I talk about how my celebratory habit got a little bit out of hand and became, instead of a special occasion, it was sort of like an evening habit of uh, cooking up a big bowl of popcorn and adding body fat accordingly over several months' time. And I had to check that, uh, reflect, and recalibrate. So anyway, uh, I find that when you do have a lot of calories, especially carbs the previous night, it kind of stimulates hunger in the morning, interestingly. Uh, so a lot of times I'll notice that the hunger sensations go away in about 15 to 20 minutes. That's validated by science. Dr. Kate Shanahan says that the activity of the prominent hunger hormone ghrelin, the spike that causes the growling in your stomach, remember how easy to remember the term, ghrelin gets your stomach growling. Anyway, that growling of the stomach, that discomfort will actually subside in about 20 minutes. And that's kind of your body realizing that there are no calories coming imminently and it needs to kick over to turbocharge fat burning ketone production and sustain you until you finally do get a meal. So if you can work through that little spike, uh, then I can comfortably last for many more hours, even do a uh, high stress, high intensity workout during those morning hours and not feel hungry after due to the, uh, the, the stress hormone spike from the workout kind of dulls appetite. The elevation of body temperature also dulls appetite. And I'll get back into that pattern of having uh, sometimes a lavish meal at midday. Other days, for whatever reason, uh, the dark chocolate will be calling my name at 10 a.m. And I'm going to answer the call because I'm not too worried about it and I don't have these strict rules and parameters in place. So uh, the intuitive approach has a lot of benefits and one of them is kind of that freedom from attachment to uh, foods, mealtimes, uh, regimented patterns. And so if you can rise above, um, let's say if 16-8 is what you're all about or keto is what you're all about, if you can rise above that and make a decision one day to honor your intuition and do something different, uh, if my cousin Babby's visiting from across the country and she makes me a delicious omelet in the morning and it's 10 a.m. and I'm a 16-8 kind of person and I say, no thanks, sorry, um, you know, that might not be the best decision. It might be a chance for a celebratory meal and a departure from your usual pattern just because 
there's an omelet steaming there sitting in front of you on the plate. And maybe the next 10 days, you'll recalibrate back to your usual pattern. But I find when traveling or uh, being in a celebratory mood or what have you, uh, it's certainly uh, acceptable to just go with the flow and do what feels best. And I also will say that the intuitive approach works because there's probably a rationale and a benefit to being open and flexible to changing your routine and your pattern over time. Uh, could be due to aging, could be due to changes in your fitness program or your fitness aspirations, or possibility of further optimizing your dietary patterns with more exploration. Uh, case in point, best example is the recent uh, sensation of the carnivore diet, which was nowhere a couple few years ago, unheard of. And now it has a huge following, a huge movement of people who are experiencing remarkable healing from chronic nagging inflammatory and autoimmune conditions that seem to be traced to the consumption of uh, plant toxins that they're reacting to. And these plant toxins extend not just gluten and wheat and grains and things that were uh, most of us listeners are trying to stay away from or have completely eradicated, but also into the wonderful, uh, colorful, nutritious vegetable category where that kale salad that you believe is the centerpiece of your healthy existence or the broccoli or the, uh, the nuts and seeds and things that you know are widely regarded as uh, nutritious and, and fabulous in every way uh, could be caused some problems in sensitive people. So I think that's one of the uh, aspects of the carnivore movement that's become really popular is people restricting all plant foods for an experimental period of time, 30 days, and noticing that uh, their uh, digestive conditions have uh, cleared up. I also think it has tremendous potential for fat reduction because anytime you go on a highly restrictive diet, you're going to succeed in terms of consuming fewer calories and burning more body fat just because you uh, have fewer choices, but also the extremely high satiety of a high-protein, high-fat meal, uh, such as most of the foods you're going to find in the animal scene, uh, eggs, steak, uh, organ meats, uh, fish, things like that. These meals are incredibly satisfying, but they have little to no carbohydrate content, so they're going to promote uh, fat fat-burning dominance over time without those glucose spikes that you get when you're throwing in uh, your sweet potato fries every other day or whatever other snacks and things that are spiking uh, glucose, prompting that insulin response and shutting off fat-burning. So the potential to drop excess body fat, to heal from uh, conditions like leaky gut or other inflammatory autoimmune conditions is pretty awesome. And whatever you think about it or wherever your fixed beliefs lie, uh, I feel like it's a plug for maintaining an open mind and training yourself to think critically rather than dismissing things out of hand that don't align with your fixed beliefs. Uh, And in my case, I've been writing about the wonderful benefits of the plant kingdom uh, since since day one, the start of the Primal Blueprint 12 years ago. It was uh, universally agreed by everyone, even the whole food plant-based vegan people who have extremely disparate dietary views to someone in the ancestral world, but of course we can all agree that that steaming hot plate of broccoli is a superfood winner, Uh, but now having to challenge that and reflect upon it uh, is a wonderful exercise, being willing to test and perhaps do a dietary restriction. So if I were a listener and I had any kind of nagging autoimmune inflammatory or symptoms of uh, gut dysfunction, I would certainly uh, take the chance of dedicating 30 days of life to a restrictive diet and evaluating the results. And uh, just for fun, and not that I uh, attribute a lot of suffering or, or feel like I'm a, a deep sufferer uh, from plant toxins, uh, I, I tried it anyway to discern the effects. And boy, it's uh, really prompted a Uh, I think what I'm going to consider to be a lifelong shift in my dietary strategy. And frankly, now I emphasize the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, which are the big winners in the animal category, uh, like liver, uh, like oily cold water fish, the smash fish family, that's salmon, 
mac- or sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring. Those are the foods with the highest omega-3 content. They also happen to be uh, the most affordable, easy to access, and tremendous health benefits. Uh, the organ meat of liver is known as the superfood king of the planet, possibly the most nutrient-dense food on the planet. You could put in a, uh, a competition there from something like salmon eggs, caviar, things that have true nutrient density, or a farm-fresh, pasture-raised, sustainable harvest egg. You're getting the essential life force of the egg, right? A total nutrition experience that's uh, hard to rival. So anyone trashing the consumption of eggs or uh, saying that they have an egg white omelet, oh my gosh, uh, time to wake up and get with the program. And I'm talking to you, LeBron James. I know you're playing great in the playoffs, man, but he did a podcast uh, in recent years. Oh, it was on the Tim Ferriss show with him and his trainer. And they were talking about his egg white omelet in the morning. And so why would you deprive yourself of uh, one of the most nutritious foods on the planet, which is the egg yolk? Egg white is just kind of a, 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 a you know medium quality source of protein uh, inferior to the whey. That's why the uh, the protein supplements are the top ones are made with whey. Uh, so interesting that we still haven't caught on even at the highest level of athletic performance. That is LeBron James. How about that article? You can Google it where it says LeBron James spends a million dollars a year on his body, on his training, recovery, rehabilitation, prevention, uh, diet, uh, sports performance, sports psychology, all that stuff. But he still hasn't gone over from the egg whites. Maybe he will after listening to the show because I think he does listen to me uh, quite a bit. I think he's stalking me on social media. But we'll see if someday he's having the rich omelet with all the nutrition that it it offers. Funny enough, I've gone over to uh, the opposite and actually am really fond of making these egg yolk omelets. So I dump out the whites and I have this incredibly bright yellow omelet. I'll put sardines, sun-dried tomatoes, a little bit of melted cheese, sliced avocados on top. And that is a, such a nutritious meal. If that's my midday meal, I'm almost not even hungry for dinner most days because it's so fantastic. And uh, uh, Brian Liver King Johnson will put like nine egg yolks into his smoothie. Yeah, superfood, super nutrition. And so that's why I'm calling this a lifelong dietary transition where I no longer go looking for huge piles of produce to consume every single day in the name of health because the foods I just mentioned on the animal superfood list are vastly superior in all uh, nutritional categories if you count them together collectively uh, than the best foods from the plant kingdom. And I also reference an assortment of digestive disturbances in conjunction with consuming uh, especially high volumes of plant foods. Uh, I was making my super nutrition green smoothie uh, for many years, uh, filled with raw kale, spinach, celery, beets, carrots, and I drink this thing, uh, teeming with nutrition and putting all kinds of other powders and supplements in there, and invariably my stomach would bloat out for a couple hours afterwards, and sometimes I'd have like transient sharp abdominal pain that would last for five minutes and go away, or I'd have to hang upside down on my yoga stand and alleviate the discomfort in my digestive tract that occurred after drinking this high volume of raw produce. So clearly I was reacting to something uh, in those uh, those plant foods, the natural plant toxins, uh, a lot of times we uh, greatly neutralize these plant toxins by cooking them, uh, soaking, sprouting, fermenting, doing things to the plant to render the toxins less offensive. And it's just interesting to reflect on the big picture there that we're doing all these preparations to plants so that they don't kill us in the case of, I don't know, what are the things that are poisonous? Like uh, if you eat a cashew nut that's raw, that hasn't been um, soaked, sprouted, fermented, Uh, Some of this stuff is truly poisonous, right? Uh, But in terms of the the raw produce, uh, it was just teeming with those anti-nutrients as well as uh, higher nutritional value because I hadn't cooked it. Uh, But that's when I reflected like, wait, what am I doing here when uh, these other foods from the animal kingdom are certainly not reactive, uh, at least to me, and full of more nutrition, more satiety factor? So I guess back to the the theme here of the intuitive approach, this is just something that uh, felt right to try out. 
uh, right? To keep that open mind, try to uh, experiment with a carnivore-ish pattern, uh, see what happens, and go with the flow and see what works and what feels great. So uh, that's especially the case with fasting. Uh, I should also mention that Fasting itself is a stressor to the body, right? You're starving your cells of a steady supply of energy and forcing them to work more efficiently. You've heard of the term autophagy. That's the natural cellular internal detoxification process. Very important to uh, recycle, repair, or uh, get rid of, snuff out uh, damaged cellular material that has the potential to turn problematic later. Apoptosis is also a, a function, an internal mechanism. It's the program death of dysfunctional or damaged cells, the desirable uh, program death of damaged dysfunctional cells, uh, precancerous cells, for example. And these mechanisms are upregulated when you're in a fasted state. So by many counts and many measures, the body works most efficiently when it's in a fasted state. It's also upregulating uh, the internal antioxidant production. You may have heard of the master antioxidant glutathione. So we we manufacture glutathione internally, very powerful. We also manufacture other ones like SOD, superoxide dismutase, and catalase. And so if we're missing out on our green smoothie drink and all the antioxidants inside, you can uh, rest assured, take comfort knowing that your period of fasting in the morning, rather than drinking that morning smoothie, is uh, equaling or arguably uh, delivering a superior antioxidant response to the antioxidant response that you get from consuming these antioxidant-stimulating foods, right? So that's sort of uh, part of my rationale, my thought process for uh, passing on these foods by and large and just focusing on the uh, super nutrition offered uh, by the animal foods, uh, alleviating a little bit of uh, digestive stress and trouble. And boy, see, see for yourself what happens and what works for you and what doesn't. Oh, so to finish my comment, you know, fasting is a form of stress to the body because you're starving your cells of energy and getting that beneficial uh, impact of getting better at recycling, repairing damaged cellular material, making antioxidants, and so forth. But it's still a stressor, uh, just as exercise is a stressor, right? So if you're pairing fasting and intense exercise, you are doubling up on the stressors. If you can handle it, uh, like Mark Sisson, he eats in that compressed time window and basically does a fasted workout every single day. If you can handle it, you're getting uh, wonderful metabolic flexibility benefits. You're getting really good at burning body fat, making ketones, repairing cells. Uh, but it does take a little bit of uh, sensitivity, caution, and acclimation period because if you pile on too many stressors, uh, it can overwhelm the body and it become too much and lead to uh, breakdown, uh, fatigue, exhaustion, burnout, what have you. Uh, and I'm still uh, trying to solve this puzzle myself, okay, because I'm trying to uh, perform some ambitious high-intensity workouts. Uh, I'm in the higher age group, so I guess that could be called a stressor too, right? I'm 55 years old trying to do what I'm doing out there and do the sprinting and the high-jumping workouts, uh, breaking world records and speed golf at a full-out dead sprint and all that crazy stuff. So I'm asking a lot from my body, and I'm also engaging in a lot of prolonged fasting, and I'm uh, consuming uh, meals that are uh, really low in carbohydrate, generally speaking. And I feel like at times when you string all those together, my age, my high-intensity workout, uh, my uh, fasting, and low-carbohydrate intake in the diet, it's possible that that was a little bit too much for me, and I experienced sort of a uh, energy lull uh, 24, 36, 48 hours after the workout, let's say. So I'm now in favor of uh, strategic introduction or inclusion of carbohydrates in and around those high-intensity workouts as sort of a preventive measure uh, to minimize the stress of the workout, make sure that I restock glycogen efficiently and easily uh, by slamming down an order of sweet potato fries from the restaurant down the street or whatever I decide to make, a whole bunch of dark chocolate, uh, my fabulous Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece new nut butter product. Oh my gosh, it'll change your life. That's a 
little plug for bradventures.com. Go order some and try it out yourself. I'm not kidding. It's unbelievable, delicious, nutritious, fantastic. Anyway, consuming those kind of foods uh, in the aftermath of those intense workouts uh, feels like a strategy that works for me. It feels intuitively right. And <laughs> secondly, if my appetite's calling for consumption of carbohydrates, uh, like that bowl of popcorn in the evening, that's probably an indication that I need them. Uh, so, you know, be careful, be mindful. Uh, don't use the hall pass card that uh, I, I need Ben and Jerry's now because I did an impressive spin workout this morning. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about being open uh, to new ideas and experimentation and being really intuitive and monitoring your natural appetite and your satiety signals uh, as you go about the day and try to make the best decisions with eating. And I'll argue that most of us have just snuffed those out and suppressed those by this massive uh, consumption of high-carbohydrate foods, grain-based diet, and uh, the indulgence and the decadence that we have with the easy access to food without having to work for it. Oh my gosh, my daughter's a driver for um, DoorDash. And so, you know, some of the gigs are pretty good. You go to the Chinese restaurant, you pick up uh, the huge order and you deliver it to the family that uh, doesn't feel like uh, rushing out to, to go pick up the food. And then the next order will come in for like McDonald's some mofo ordering a Coke and a hamburger and fries that's too lazy to drive down to McDonald's and get this crappy food uh, to stick into their body. <laughs> but you know what she says? Sometimes those are the best tippers. Isn't that cool? Hey, whatever that means, you know. Uh, not sure the direct relevance to you and your health and fitness goals, but a fun anecdote to share and a great way to uh, wrap up the show as we wind up some cool questions and some running stream of commentary about the important matters of the day from your host, Brad Kearns. Much more to come on the next show. Thank you so much. And send me your feedback, comments, questions. Oh my gosh, you probably have 27 questions emanating from this crazy show. And love to hear from you. Info at primalblueprintpublishing.com. Have a great day. Keep an open mind. Think critically. Be willing to experiment. Tap into your intuition. <sighs> Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal... Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.